Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. On 882-6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. Hello once again, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Barra and O'Day, doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. This week, we speak to one of the country's most respected business leaders. His CV is quite extraordinary. It includes some of the the big heavy hitters uh, in the corporate uh, sector here in Australia, West Farmers, Woodside and the National Australia Bank, uh, just to name a few. Would you please welcome Michael Cheney? Thanks Hello, Michael. very much, Tim. Uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, it's an incredible CV you've got, uh, which we'll, we'll try to, uh, to cover as much as we can. Your back catalogue is, uh, is, is quite prolific, but mm. tell us, what are you doing now? Well, I'm currently chairman of West Farmers. Mm -hmm. Uh, I retired as chairman of Woodside a couple of weeks ago, actually after 11 years on that board. And I retired as uh, chancellor at UWA in December last year after 12 years. So my load is uh, lighter in the corporate sense. I am, uh, in addition, chairing a body called the National School Resourcing Board, which is a federal government body um, tasked with making sure that federal government funds are distributed on a needs basis and that's taking a fair bit of time at the mm, moment. I can imagine. Uh, let's go back though before you uh, you even probably even thought about entering uh, the, the corporate world. Uh, one of seven children, where yeah. did you fit in, the, five, uh, in the order there? Five of seven. Yeah. I had, uh, I've got three brothers and three sisters and uh, I was the fifth in, in, in seniority if you like. Some of your early childhood memories? Well, I, I was brought up in a very stable, happy family sort of environment. Mum and dad were fantastic people and, and uh, I've always been in a very supportive environment, very, if you like, positive. There was very little negative feedback uh, in, my, uh, in my youth. Um, and uh, dad was a member of parliament yes. and a federal minister, so he was away a fair bit, but Mum was the homemaker and, and uh, everyone pitched in, but it was, you know, it was a terrific upbringing, really. Mm. In, the, in the Menzies government? Yeah, he was uh, a minister in the Menzies government. In fact, I remember when I was probably eight or nine on a plane and uh, uh, we were going to Canberra and I wandered back and my mother said to me, there was a, a guy sitting next over the, the aisle from them and mum said to me, do you know who this is, Mikey? And I looked at Bob Menzies and said, Uncle Jock, isn't it? <laughs> but he was, uh, yeah, he was a minister in the Menzies uh, government and, and, uh, and subsequently, you know, Menzies' successors. Mm. Was there a lot of, lot of talk of, of, of politics and policy around the, the dinner table in the Chaney, Chaney household? There was, there was a bit. Dad, I think, 
probably deliberately didn't burden us with yeah. uh, you know, strong opinions and so on so that we were able to develop, develop our own. My brother Fred was, uh, you know, who's about eight or nine years older than me, was always pretty active in student politics and so uh, we'd generally have discussions about things but there was never any... Uh, we didn't have any uh, wild arguments mm. or uh, or disputes about politics. Uh, it was more uh, an environment where we talked about every subject, and mm. politics might have been one of them. Uh, you went on to uh, to to do secondary schooling at Aquinas College. Um, yep. I have to declare I'm a I'm a Trinity graduate, so uh, we shouldn't really even I'll be speaking right that. now. But yeah, I'll forgive yeah. you too. <laughs> <laughs> um, you talked about the nurturing environment, though. Yeah. Um, as a as a kid growing up here in Perth, uh, look, I have to you know give my juice to Aquinas. They do provide that, don't they? Well, I, I thought it was a fantastic school, and the the Christian brothers uh, were uh, really a wonderful group of men. We hear a bit, you know, as the years have gone by, about um, things that happened in schools around and religious orders around the country. It certainly was never my experience. You know, as far as I was concerned, the brothers were dedicated men who mm. were dedicated to the education of kids, great in pastoral care, looking after you and so on, and really gave you a terrific education. You know, mm. it was an education back then where you got the basics, whether it was tables and rote learning and spelling and grammar and so on. Yeah. But I think it served me very well as, yep. uh, in, in my future career. Were you a high achiever at school? I was a sort of medium to high achiever. My reports generally read, uh, Michael could do better if he tried. <laughs> and so I might have got sort of between fifth and tenth in the class <laughs> when uh, the brothers thought I could have done more. And I came out with a pretty good leaving certificate, yeah. you know, of like seven subjects and five distinctions, which allowed me to go and do yeah. any course at university. and. I put that down really to the, the the great teaching that I was subjected to. Yeah, I, I'm curious to know where those uh, the core values that you've obviously uh, had for a long time that have carried you through the, the the corporate sector where they have come from. I mean, I, I have to yeah. say, just looking at your your background, you're not the only high achiever in your family, are you? You come from a yeah. um, a, a, a pretty prolific family in terms of, uh, of you know, reaching great heights in, in the community. Your brother's a Supreme Court justice, of course, your brother yeah. uh, has been a politician and, and so on. Yeah, and, and I think it's a really important point, actually, Tim, that um, if you think of the people before me, my sister Robin, Fred, uh, Karen, Richard, all high achievers, all mm. did extremely well at school. And I do remember my mother, mother saying to me, uh, Mike, we don't care... Uh, how well you do as long as you try your hardest. And there was no real pressure to come up with great results and so on, but there was, I think, this, uh, as implied by that comment, this expectation that you would try hard mm. and uh, if you didn't do as well as one of your other siblings, it didn't matter as long as you were trying. Mm. And I think uh, there was a wholly positive sort of attitude I don't know if you're going to ask me about my university career, but mm. um, uh, as I'll mention, uh, if you do that, uh, let's do it. I was going to ask you about that because you went on to uh, to, to UWA and a Bachelor of Science, and then yeah. into the field of geology. Well, that's right. I um, uh, I started science really because 
a friend of my brother Fred's named Bill Bedette was a geologist, and I thought, well, Bill's a good guy, and that seems pretty interesting. And <laughs> as I'd, good a reason as I any. enjoyed science, so <laughs> I started off in geology in, in a Bachelor of Science. And in the first year, I got three C's and a conditional pass in physics. And the conditional pass meant that um, we'll pass you without a SUP as long as you promise not to come back through these doors of physics again. Well, I accepted the offer, and so I passed <laughs> first year. I have to say, as an aside, it gave me some mild satisfaction when the next time I went through those physics doors was about three years ago when I es- escorted the Duke of Edinburgh when I was Chancellor. <laughs> Uh, so it's 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 been quite a quite a boomerang, hasn't it? Yeah, uh, you're coming it was back to UWA. Quite a change. Mm. But I the point I was going to make earlier is that in second year uh, I failed every subject. Right. And before I uh, I went down to check my results, and before I went, uh, Dad said to me, "Give me a call when you see how you went." So I went down, and in those days you had to check in the undercroft in the windows and if you didn't pass anything, your name didn't appear and unfortunately my name wasn't there. So I called Dad and he said, how'd you go? I said, I failed every subject. And he replied, those bloody useless university lecturers, they wouldn't have a clue. (laughs) Well, I knew he didn't believe that, but it's, I think, a great example of... um, of positive reinforcement, I my reaction was, "Gee, poor Dad, I, I'd better yeah. actually do some work next year mm. and, and do better." And what was I the then, problem? Too much time in the tavern, or too much time in the tavern? I'd met my uh, the person, the woman who's to become my future wife, and I, you know, wasted a lot of time not studying. But it was a wake up call, and I then went on and and did better. And in my MBA degree, eventually did a yeah. lot better. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you about that. We might uh, head to a break and get into that uh, straight after that because obviously you uh, you did work as a, a geologist for some time, but then the MBA seemed to be, I suppose, the next big venture that set you on your path into yeah. the corporate sector. So we'll get into that. Michael Cheney uh, is our special guest in this edition of Inspiring Stories. Back soon here on 882 6PR. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day. Generations of excellence since 1888. My name is Tim McMillan. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. My special guest is Michael Cheney. Michael, we're just talking about your early university days. Uh, you got through that Bachelor of Science. <laughs> you spent uh, several years working uh, in the in the mining sector. What was it that then lured you back to uh, to university and doing more study? Well, I yes, when I graduated, I joined what's now Woodside uh, yep. as a petroleum geologist, and I worked offshore. And it was then owned by the Burma Oil Company in the UK, and they bought an American company and transferred me to Houston. So I, I ended up having uh, eight years as a petroleum geologist, during which time I was in Australia in Houston and then back in Australia. And when I was in Houston, I went off to a little night course to learn about the stock exchange, and I found it pretty interesting. And when I came back to Australia... I decided to uh, start an MBA part-time while I was working as a geologist. And I think, uh, I recall, I think my uh, my uh, objective there was to just broaden my uh, knowledge and to give me another string to my bow because at the time I was thinking, gee, if I continue to be a geologist for the rest of my life, I may end up spending two years here, two years mm-hmm. here and never really settling. 
And so I started the MBA at UWA and, and did a couple of units and really enjoyed it. I, mm. I, I realized that commercial sort of area was one that interests interest me enormously. Mm. And, and mm. so I did, I have to say, much better in my marks <laughs> than I had in my science degree. The distractions weren't so tempting then. Yeah, that's right. I was 28 by that stage. Let's let's fast forward then to you joining West Farmers. Uh, obviously, people will... will often know you best for your time at the helm of West Farmers, but uh, there was a bit of a, a rising through the ranks there, wasn't there? Tell yeah. us about your progression through West Farmers. Sure. Well, I uh, when I finished the MBA, I moved from geology into investment banking, and I had three years uh, with an, a fantastic organisation which was wholly owned by the Commonwealth Government called Australian Industry Development Corporation. They were financing all the big resource projects like the Northwest Shelf and coal mines and and iron ore mines and so on. And I came back after a year in Canberra with them to set up the office in Perth. And one of our big clients was West Farmers Co-op. Uh, they borrowed money from us to, uh, uh, for example, purchase CSBP, the fertiliser company. And so I got to know the people there and eventually they were looking for a company secretary and they approached me and I joined them uh in, uh, after I'd had three years in investment banking. So I started off as company secretary and administration manager and then about a year later I became chief financial officer and, and finance director. Mm. Uh, the time at Bunnings, I'll, I'll ask you to, uh, to you know, not, not be so uh, humble here, but uh, what was the secret to, to, to the success that you uh, presided over? Uh, as the as the boss yeah. of West Farm, because I mean, obviously, you know, there's a, a big stable of of companies there, but the mm-hmm. uh, the rise in value of West Farmers was quite extraordinary, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, and and I think due to the fact that we took it from a farmers co-op and in 1983 uh, and 84 actually listed it on the stock exchange and it became West Farmers Limited, mm. and at that time we were making about ten million dollars after tax profit and today it's making you know profits in the billions of dollars so it's it's been a tremendous period of growth um the bunnings case is a very interesting one because i think it illustrates the unpredictability of business you know you you really have trouble forecasting much in the long term west farmers started to take an interest in bunnings for its forest business um tom bunning actually came to see me and said look there's a radar on our doorstep, would you would West Farmers like to take ten percent of the listed Bunnings company? And I said to him, "Well, if we do, we'd be happy to, but you should know that we'd like eventually to own the whole company." And to my delight, actually, he said, "Well, that's fine. Um, eventually, it'll probably happen, and better West Farmers than someone else." Mm. So we took uh, a ten percent interest that became twenty. We made a few takeover bids and eventually owned the whole business. And at that time, the hardware business was making, I think, less than $10 million profit. Uh, and today it's making across over, the, across uh, in the whole hardware the, business in right? Bunnings. Wow. And I'd actually gone off to Harvard for a three-month course and had seen the Home Depot case, yeah. uh, Home Depot being the equivalent in the U.S., and it was this incredible straight line of profit growth when they started developing warehouse-style hardware stores. And when I came back, I mentioned it at a board meeting. Joe Boris, uh, I think, took that on board. And, and a few months later, uh, 
and I think also through his own initiative and may well have happened in the absence of my saying anything, sent some people to the US, had a look at what they were doing and came back and said, let's um, develop some warehouse-style scores mm. and the rest is history. You know, it's been a fabulous pattern of growth. Mm. But it was just one aspect of West Farmer's growth, the the purchase of coal mines, West Collieries, Cara, yeah. Bengala was equally important in, yeah. in the growth of the company. In terms of Bunnings, uh, that sort of seemed to coincide with this, um, I suppose, this uh, this DIY phenomenon too, didn't it? Um, yeah. Uh, a lot of people taking to home improvements on their own. Do you take some responsibility for all the failed DIY projects around Australia? Blokes <laughs> <laughs> like me have uh, tried, to, <laughs> tried to have a go at doing stuff that they had no skills to do. <laughs> As a keen DIYer, I, I empathise. Yeah, it's, it's very, uh, very easy to mess up. Not to mention the, you know, the, the phenomenon now that is the Bunnings sausage sizzle. You know, yeah. I, I invent reasons to go to Bunnings on a Saturday just so I can have a sausage sizzle. It is, uh, it <laughs> no, is, I'm not alone. It is very tempting. That's yeah. Um, but I mean, the, the extraordinary growth of, of Bunnings now, just to, just to ask you more about that, has obviously now gone overseas mm. uh, as well. Um, big call to, to take Bunnings uh, offshore and enter the market in the UK? It was a big call, and it, but it's exactly the sort of thing I think a company like West Farmers ought to be doing, that is stepping out, uh, applying what you know here to other markets or other opportunities, taking some risk and so on. Uh, the bottom line is it hasn't gone well, mm. um, and you will have seen we wrote off about a billion dollars uh, in the last report, uh, and we're currently uh, conducting a review to determine which way we go forward with yeah. it, and, and we're hoping within the next month actually to make some announcements about uh, the way forward. Yeah, um, what's wh- what's been the the problem there? Do you think? Well, th- the first problem was that we made some mistakes. Um, the the view was that the management that we were taking, we took over a chain of 270-odd stores and the idea was to convert them into Bunnings stores and the view was that the local management over there weren't of the calibre of the people we had here, that the products uh, weren't really suitable. 40% of them were sort of soft furnishings, Laura Ashley franchise, that sort of thing, and that the prices were too high. So uh, the plan was move our own people in, get rid of 40% of the products, expand the hardware range, uh, lower the prices to be more competitive and convert stores to Bunnings warehouses. Um, The mistakes that were made were that we got rid of 40% of the products, but we also got rid of 40% of the customers Mm. and they weren't replaced by others. We lowered the prices and no one really noticed and um, the lack of local knowledge was was telling when seasonality came along. So, you know, you have six months in the UK when people don't buy anything mm. outdoors, for example, or garden mm. products. Uh, and so we've learned a lot over the period. Um, and uh, as I say, we, we hope within a month to be able to announce mm. uh, what we're going to do going forward. All and right. that may be... Uh, continue to operate using what we've learnt, converting stores, or it may be disposing of the business. Yeah, okay. Well, that will be uh, a huge announcement. We'll have to watch this space. We do have to take a break as well. I want to ask you about uh, the banking sector and your time sure. uh, at NAB after that. Michael Cheney is our special guest on this edition of WA's Inspiring Stories. More after this here on 882 6PR. 
You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, this week, our special guest is uh, business leader, Michael Cheney. Um, Michael, can I ask you, uh, I, I, I'm curious uh, to hear your thoughts on uh, some of the revelations that have come out of the uh, the Banking Royal Commission. I, I, I mean, you certainly weren't alone in uh, uh, in in suggesting some years ago when this was being uh, proposed uh, uh, by politicians that this was all about politics. Um, given now some of the the revelations in that Royal Commission, has it been a worthwhile exercise? Uh, I, I suppose it has been. Uh, you know what we're reading in the paper. Uh, matters that, uh, as somebody commented the other day, the Royal Commission hasn't really got any surprises because it knew about these sort of issues when it called for submissions from the banks, mm. and the banks knew about them as well. The the disturbing thing, uh, and the the reason I think it's been useful to have it with hindsight, is that um, that it took p it took the organisations a long time to take action when they actually knew about some of the problems. What you would hope is that uh, even with the best intentions, somebody will do something wrong down in the organisation that you move quickly to do something about it and make sure the message is sent out that it's unacceptable. Mm. And, you know, of the things I've read in the newspaper, and I must say I'm like everyone else and uh, an outside observer of it, uh, the thing that's uh, disappointed me most is that lack of rapid action when things mm. have gone wrong. Yeah, uh, just going back then, tell us about how uh, how you first came to uh, to take on a role uh, at NAB. At, at NAB, well, I um, I retired from West Farmers in two thousand and five, and I was actually being lined up to uh, chair another large company when uh, NAB got into some strife over some um, financial dealing, options trading, and so on in in. It, this must have been uh, in the early part of the GFC, on the 2007 uh, global sort of financial crisis. And um, I was then called on to come in and replace the chairman. They were replacing half the board uh, and to sort of stabilise the situation. So that's how I, uh, I came to join the board of NAB rather than a, another large company. And I had about ten years then as uh, as chairman of the bank. In it must have been an extraordinary time to be uh, the chairman of a of a bank as big as that uh, during, uh, for many people, uh, the biggest financial crisis they'd ever lived through. Yeah, it was it was a very interesting time in that you know the uh, banks worldwide were threatened with collapse, mm. and the Australian banks were threatened, for example, at one stage with not being able to source funds. Mm. for their balance sheet from offshore because of the nervousness around the world. And we had some um, pretty uh, important, I think, meetings with uh, the Prime Minister and the Treasurer to, to to discuss issues like should the government step in, take yes. shareholdings in the banks and so on. That wasn't necessary in the end, but the bank, the government did strengthen its, uh, its uh, support of the banks through guarantees and so on. Yep. It, it was a particularly stressful time for everybody because – if the world's banks collapse, the financial system collapses and you don't have a, an operating economy. And so, uh, you know, looking back, some people say the world was on the edge of a precipice and it was it, it uh, was recovered, but it was a stressful time. And so that was 
um, that was challenging. And then uh, the bank itself had all sorts of uh, uh, enforceable undertakings imposed on it because of the events that had happened before I'd gone. And it took us some years to work through those. And eventually we did and things were stabilised. Yeah. But I, uh, it's worth talking about the Royal Commission and the uh, and the issue of uh, what's happened in the banks and the behaviours that have been uncovered because it's easy to stand back and say uh, it, it seems incredible. I can't understand how these things could have happened. But it all derives, in my view, from the fact that in Australia we've got four major banks competing with each other. When you're a CEO of a bank, of a listed bank, you spend quite a bit of your time going in front of investors and the one thing they keep asking you is, where's the profit growth coming from mm. next year? Yeah. And we, if we're going to invest in your shares, we want profit growth. And, and they you, want it now. And we we're want we're it now. And if term. you don't achieve it, you'll be a failure. So the CEO goes back to the uh, office and devises incentive plans and so on to try and take market share from the other banks. And somewhere down in the ranks, somebody will do something wrong. Mm. Um, with the best will in the world and the best controls, you know, people motivated by money will find a way of, uh, of mm. doing the wrong thing, or some of them will, unfortunately. What you've got to do in that circumstance, as I said earlier, is stomp on it, you mm. know, make sure that people get the message, this is unacceptable. Um, but it's that constant demand for profit growth, that, which I think is unreasonable in many cases mm. if you're already achieving a reasonable return, um, which uh, results eventually in some bad behaviours. Yeah, and yet uh, against this backdrop of a uh, backdrop of of bank bashing that's just become this national pastime, uh, hasn't it? How did you deal with that when you're the chairman of a, of a bank that, uh, along with others? Is, uh, is constantly being knocked for recording these um, huge profits. Yeah, well, I always felt it ironic. Uh, I mean, at the time I was at the bank, uh, there were no disclosures of poor behaviour. There were actually incidents, and you deal with APRA, the regulators, and ASIC, and, and uh, make sure that you uh, endeavoured to be on top of any poor behaviours. But uh, the issue you're talking about really was one of Banks are making billions of mm. dollars of profit. So mm. This is a bad thing. I always thought it was ironic since the banks pay out 80% of their profits as dividends and almost all Australians receive them through their superannuation mm. in some form because the banks are the biggest companies here. And, um, and it's not as if they're making huge profits and keeping them to themselves. They're distributing them to the, mm. all the shareholders. And so... Um, uh, it, you know, it always seemed a bit ironic. Now, of course, everyone deals with a bank and if interest rates go up, they feel aggrieved. Yeah. Um, and I can understand that. But as I mentioned earlier, from the, the CEO's point of view at a bank, and I was never a bank CEO, but the CEO is constantly being harangued about making sure you get some profit mm. growth. Uh, you you did step away from, uh, from NAB, what, uh, one or two years ago? Uh, three years now, ago. Three now. years ago. Yeah. Um, are, you, are you quietly glad that you're not involved uh, with one of the big banks now, given I'm glad the Royal Commission? Yeah, Tim, I'm glad from the point of view that it, it is very, very time-consuming going through the process that they're going through now. The one um, observation I'd make is that even while I was there, 
a huge amount of your board time was taken up with regulatory matters. And typically for any board meeting, uh, including committee meetings that were in conjunction with the board meeting, we'd have twelve or 1,300 pages of board papers and committee mm. papers. It was a, and, and a lot of that was about regulatory compliance. Mm. If you compare being a director of a bank with being a director of some company like West Farmers, it's chalk and cheese. You mm. know, West Farmers, you tend to spend, uh, spend a huge amount of your board time thinking about uh, acquisitions or divestments or new investments and so on. Uh, rather than regulatory issues, yep. so it, it's um, it is a really heavy burden, I think, on uh, directors of banks. Yeah, uh, just back to back to West Farmers now. Um, obviously, you had a uh, a decade also also uh, away, um, which I which I, I think is uh, is is sort of expected, isn't it? You don't go from being the sort of the boss of the company to the chairman of the company. That's not 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 seen as a as a yeah. good path to follow, is it? But uh, you had some time away. Um, how much has it changed now, given you've got other huge retailers now that are, that are infiltrating the Australian market, the, the likes yeah. of Amazon? How has that changed the landscape for you in that 10 years you, that you're away? Well, when I left, um, West Farmers only involvement in retailing was Bunnings, mm. and it was then growing and, uh, and was probably only about 40%, maybe 50% of its current size. Um, the Coles acquisition some years later resulted in uh, the following uh, businesses coming into the group, Coles, mm. Kmart, Target, Officeworks, and so on. And uh, it changed the complexion of the group a lot. Uh, we've n- announced recently that we're proposing to spin off Coles, i.e. our mm. shareholders will end up owning it separately. Mm. Um and that'll diminish retail as a proportion in the group, but retail will still obviously be very mm. important with those other businesses. At the same time now, we have the likes of Amazon or Aldi coming in. In the target space, you've got other specialists coming in from overseas uh, competing with them. And uh, you've got online retailing um, by you know all of the players in the field. And some people say... Um, uh, it's all different to what it used to be. Uh, we're now threatened with disruption much more. Mm. My view is I've never experienced any time in a business when it wasn't threatened with disruption. Mm. It's just a different type of disruption. Mm. And mm. Uh, competition has always been fierce. I, I always had a saying, um, if it ain't broke, get ready to change it. <laughs> because if you keep doing what you're doing, uh, because it's successful, somebody will come in and knock you off. Mm. And and it's really important to keep it in mind because when things are going brilliantly, uh, you tend to think, well, we're on top of our game and this will just keep going, but it mm. never does. And so I don't see the Amazons and so on uh, coming in as uh, a much bigger threat than the sort of threat that we've always uh, yeah. faced in business. Well, time will tell. We need to head to a break. Uh, after that, I really want to ask you about uh, uh, the education landscape because obviously yeah. you've, uh, you've come back and spent time uh, at UWA, having been a student uh, several decades ago, yeah. uh, and how that whole sector has uh, undergone massive change as well. Michael Cheney is our special guest on this edition of Inspiring Stories. Back with more here on 882 6PR. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. 
Welcome back to WA's Inspiring Stories. My name is Tim McMillan. My special guest is Michael Cheney. Michael, you told us earlier about uh, uh, some of your early days at uh, the University of WA, uh, an inglorious second year, but uh, I think you've uh, well and truly redeemed yourself, so much so that uh, they invited you to, uh, to come back as, uh, as the Chancellor, no less. Um, what an extraordinary turnaround. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, hopefully they looked at my MBA results and not my bachelor of science results. But um, it was a great honour for me actually to go back as Chancellor and, and I ended up serving 12 years uh, in that role until I retired last December. Mm. And it was a particularly um, interesting and challenging role because the uh, the whole environment has changed for universities over time, and uh, you know. The, I mean, it would have been free when you were there. It was pretty yes. well free. There were there were some fees, but there were a lot of Commonwealth scholarships. Yeah, and, uh, and even if you didn't have a scholarship, it wasn't that expensive. And so, uh, the cost of a university education has gone up. Uh, government funding has been more limited, particularly in research over recent years, and. Uh, you know, costs have gone up for all universities and, and when caps were lifted on enrolments, uh, there was a big expansion mm. and, you know, that involved more revenues but also more costs. So um, at UWA, we found uh, after a, a period of expansion, uh, we needed to um, get our costs uh, cut and so we had a retrenchment program over three years or over actually two years of about 300 people. Mm. And that was challenging because while it was needed and essential, um, if it if it had been in a company, it would have actually occurred over a few weeks. But in a university under the uh, uh, EBAs, you've got to have a process that goes on with appeals and so on. And it went over about 18 yeah. months. And the result of, it, of that was that I think morale was lower because people were worried about their jobs when the university is now through that and is recruiting 50 new outstanding researchers and teachers. Yeah. But um, it, it was facing challenges just like all other universities in terms of yeah. uh, revenue cost squeezes. In terms of uh, navigating your way through that sector compared to business, I mean, often, you know, in times when you announce you're going to cut 300 jobs, your share price will go up, <laughs> have a little little spike. Uh, you do it at a, at a um, you know, a... a a university like UWA, which has such a, a long, proud history, you do that, yeah. you end up with protests. How did you navigate your way through the different yeah. cultures? Well, uh, the, the first thing I should say is that, of course, the university's been run by the vice-chancellor and his or her mm. executive. The chancellor sits as chairman of the Senate, and the Senate basically appoints the, right, the vice-chancellor and makes sure that they're doing the right thing and governs mm. uh, yep. the university. But the real task of managing uh, an exercise like that is a management task, and it's mm. initiated by the management as well. Um, as you say, in a university, uh, it's not like a company. You, mm. you might need to uh, cut your costs and so on, but it's a much longer process, and you may well have protests uh, out in the street, You know, whether it's students or, or academic members. Uh, the important thing is that the, uh, the the action is well-reasoned, well-assessed beforehand, is logical, is necessary, and then uh, the, the Senate, in that case, gets behind the management. And, mm. and, you know, the Senate, after all, is the body that 
originally approved the recommendation to take those actions. And so you need to be you need to make sure that the management feels supported by the mm. Senate. I have read some of your comments in the past around deregulation of of uni fees. Um, is that is that still the path that we need to to go down to let the market ultimately decide what a university education is worth? Well, there are some challenges with it. The in the UK, for example, they raised the limit you could charge for fees, and they did that on the basis in the assumption that uh, universities that were higher ranked would charge more than universities that were further down the ladder, if you like. What happened was that everyone put their fees up to the maximum immediately Mm. because uh, those who were ranked further down said, well, if we don't put our fees up, everyone will assume we're not as good. Mm. And so uh, there are some, I think, good arguments against having unlimited fees. Yep. And, of course, the, if the government's providing HECs and, and um, loans to students on the way through, there's a fiscal issue for the government as well. If fees are unlimited, mm. the government may end up providing unlimited uh, loan funds, which it can't afford to do. Mm. So um, there's got to be a balance. Um, and- there's always a pressure on government and a scrutiny of the way that they fund Education are they, have they got the balance right at the moment? Do you think not just at university, but uh, yeah, in, well, in the schooling <laughs> there'd uh, be many, group as well? There'd be many different views on that, mm. and you know, everyone, m- most people in education would say we need more funding. Yeah, um, I mean, it's interesting reading uh, the Gonski report and then look the the latest Gonski report and then looking at uh, the commentary on it, where you know half the people say it missed the point, the other half say uh, they're spot on. Uh, what's clear is that throwing more money at education is not the solution. Uh, it's the first thing is better teachers and making sure the curriculum's right and, and uh, people are being taught the the right things by the right people. Mm. But, um, it, you know, as I say, people in the education sector generally would say there needs to be more funding. The problem is uh, funding by government is limited mm. by the amount of tax they Mm. raise and there are, there are many, many uh, ways of applying it. Mm. Can I ask uh, just a, as a general question now because, you know, obviously over a large part of your life you've, uh, you've taken on some very uh, important roles. Um, I imagine that people often come to you for advice. How do I achieve some of the heights that you have, for instance? Um, yeah. What do you say to people who ask you that question? What, what are the, the sort of the, the go-to rules for you? Well, There are a couple of basic things, I think. And the first is that you should do something that you are interested in and you enjoy. Yeah. If you end up in a career because you think it'll pay a lot or um, uh, it's what people think you should be doing rather than what really interests you, I don't think you'll – you're not likely to really succeed in it because you just won't have the drive. Uh, So that's the first thing. The second thing – I've always believed, is that your focus should be on the present. That is, uh, try and do the best you can in every task that's set for you. You'd be surprised, Tim, that when uh, when you go out recruiting, you might, be, you might have 100 applicants for a job where you've got three vacancies. And so after going through the process, you take on three people and within a very short time, they stratify into one that's going to do really well, one that'll do okay, and one that really will be a bit of a plotter. Yeah. <laughs> and the difference is that 
the the for, in the first case, uh, they tackle every little task with diligence, and I always say, try and do just that bit better than your boss expects on any mm. task. Do it a bit more quickly. Do it a bit more thoroughly, because what happens then at the end of the year when you're doing performance reviews and you're sitting around with your other the other bosses, they'll say. Joe Bloggs or Jane Bloggs uh, is doing really well, you know, did a terrific effort in that and we should promote them. And and so uh, to me it's a matter of rather than saying here's my five-year plan in this job because the future is pretty unpredictable, just focus mm. on the immediate. Uh, a, uh, an admirer of yours, uh, James Graham, I have to read a quote from him about you. He says, Michael has an unbelievable calmness and extremely analytical mind. He's able to think three steps ahead when most of us are struggling to think one step ahead. He's not taken off course by short-term pressures and issues. Uh, quite a compliment. Would you, uh, would you agree with that? Well, it's very kind. Again, of, asking you not to be humble for a moment. Very kind of James to say it. I, I, I've never heard him say that. And I'd say, this, I'd say the same about It's on record. Yeah, I suppose my approach. It sort of goes to to what you were saying. Go one step ahead. Yeah, uh, almost. You know, do things earlier than expected. Just try yeah. to exceed expectations. And I, I've always um, uh, believed in uh, management by crisis. Actually, there are a whole lot of issues facing you all the time. Yeah, deal with those that are really important. Yep. And I think the advantage I've had now is that I've had a lot of experience across a whole lot of areas and you're able to sit back a bit better and say, uh, these are the important aspects of this issue and, you know, do hopefully what Jim yeah. was describing there. <laughs> Just quickly, because we've only got uh, seconds left here, outside of, uh, you know, that in- intense, as I can imagine it, uh, corporate sector, um, woodworking is yeah. something you do just to, just to chill out and unwind. I love it. I take and, it you buy your wood from Bunnings then? Oh, uh, well, and absolutely. The, and the tools? I, I now own a lot of <laughs> a lot of timber supplies, but uh, I was taught actually firstly by my former father-in-law, Don Anderson, but then by a fellow named Glenn Holst, who's I always reckon Australia's finest woodworker, furniture maker, designer and so yep. on. And uh, I've developed a real love for the, uh, for the art, if you like, and so yep. I make dining tables and furniture and so on. And mm. It is a terrific uh, distraction, mm. a, a terrific way of uh, sort of leaving behind the worries of the corporate world yeah. and, and doing something simpler. Following your uh, products through to their natural end too, which is great. You're yeah. believing in your own products. <laughs> Fantastic. There's some free corporate advice for you there from uh, none other than Michael Cheney. Michael, we appreciate you coming in and sharing your story today. Thanks, Tim. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Everyone has a story to tell. This one, Michael Cheney's, brought to you by Bower and O'Day. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA Inspiring Story. For logbook servicing you can rely on, you need to make the right choice. You need trained professionals who are fully qualified to service your car according to manufacturer's specifications. For real peace of mind and a nationwide warranty, book in or book online at repcoservice.com.